Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. This is Panel Beater, and I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Neo, Dr. Dilemma, and Dr. Sharma. Good morning to you, one and all. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Are you? Uh, how's your health and well-being? <laughs> <laughs> health and well-being is is okay this this month. Touchwood. Touchwood. <laughs> uh, Dr. Sharma, you had a bit of a uh, an experience. You were uh, skyping it in last uh, time because you were thinking you might be uh, coming down with something, oh. but then. Oh, I, I'm like Nostradamus because I absolutely <laughs> well and truly tested positive and uh, had a great three weeks. And by great, I mean not great. Um, so it, it's pretty much four weeks to the date. And, you know, it, it took me a, a solid three weeks uh, to, to kind of get over it. Um, the fatigue was really profound and finally had some lived-in experience about this thing mm. I've been ranting about for two and a half years. This is the first time you've had it? Yes. Yep. Yes, well and truly from a social contact. And, and it always surprises people because... Mm. The, all the work I've done for two and a half years yeah. is seeing people with COVID. That's just how good... Testament uh, the, to the PPE. Testament to the PPE. Mm. The, the N95, P2 respirators and, and everything else. Um, it's the place I've felt safest, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, uh, got me in the end. But it's not the end because reinfection <laughs> is still a possibility. So reinfection, yeah. I'm, I'm still, yeah. you know, uh, where I practically can, uh, masking and doing everything else. Yeah, far from over. Although um, the state governments have changed their reporting regime, not doing it daily now. I think they've just started on the weekly and the trimmed back stats. What's your what's your gut reaction to I, that? I actually think that's appropriate at yeah. this stage. I I think that the the trimming back of the stats to something that we can still access and still use for research and you know, personal interest, but not making it a daily thing and not making it mm. a um, a thing that dominates everyone's consciousness is probably healthy at this point. Yeah. 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 So I've, I've got a mixed feelings about this. So on one hand, I agree with that, particularly because daily figures by themselves don't mean a heck of a lot. Mm. That would be fine if they were counterbalancing that with some 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 sensible um, 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 uh, communication where it's not completely out of people's minds. Mm. Um, you, you know, it, I think that there's been yeah. some efforts made in Victoria. So for example, there's been quite a bit of education about N95s and and uh, and ventilation, etc. And people getting this appreciation for risk reduction. Not a, you know, you can't yeah. take away all risk. But you know, I kind of wish we saw a bit more of that uh, nationally. So, yeah, I'm, I'm in two minds about that. But, yes, I agree. I think switching from the daily to the weekly, really not a big mm. uh, big step in and of itself. Probably reasonable. Mm. I've um, weaned myself off checking every day. But, but I went and looked deliberately, um, must have been like Thursday or Friday, and people are still falling off the twig quite at quite an alarming rate. It was, I think, it was sixteen um, when I last mm. looked. You know, as a daily figure, that that was that's pretty significant, isn't it? It's mm. it's massively significant, and uh, and yet you know we also have to appreciate the fact that I think roughly last time I looked, at least a quarter of those are people who have not been you know, fully vaccinated, yeah. Yeah. whereas only five percent of the population has been vaccinated, and you know. 
Yes, any death is tragic, but that the, the deaths are occurring in the, the very, very old now. You know, kind what of, was that vaccinated stat you just gave us? So roughly a, a quarter of the deaths that are occurring right now are those who are unvaccinated people, whereas only 5% right. of people are, are actually unvaccinated. So again, disproportionately gotcha. effective. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, in, in many ways, you know, the, the numbers you know, still matter, but we have to look at it in context of, of those things. Where are we at with um, percentages of third doses? Ah, just the, roughly round figure. God, I'm not I, sure. I'm not sure. I think still trailing behind where where we'd like them. Yeah. Um, and then I have no idea about the fourth. Yeah, doses. I will say I think the booster rates are actually pretty great for people over the age of 65. Mm. So uh, an enormous number of people have had those. They're still a bit lacking, you know, in the younger age groups. Not an age group that causes a lot of death and hospitalisation at all. Now, mm. that said. I think yeah, reducing transmission still matters, and, and there, you know, boosters are still somewhat yeah. important. Yeah. So, well, we've got a cracker of a show again coming up. <laughs> um, Dilemma, you've got a you've sorted out a guest for us. I have. Yes, we've got a very exciting guest. Uh, it's Professor Mark Belgrove, uh, who is um, an ADHD expert. So, I mean, I've heard a lot about. ADHD recently, working in, in paediatrics. Um, it's also something I think we've been all hearing about more and more in the media yeah. and over the last couple of years, perhaps even more so in the last month or so since that uh, fantastic speech that um, performer M. Brassiano gave yeah, at the press conference. that was quite something. Um, so I'm very excited for our chat with um, Professor Belgrove coming up shortly. Great, yeah, that'll be about uh, ten past or so in a few minutes. Um, and Dr Sharma, something's caught your eye. yes. Polio, specifically, Polio. yes. A blast from the past. Uh, so, interestingly, New York has declared a state of emergency as polio has emerged throughout the state. Uh, it's a really fascinating uh, story to look at because in and of itself, it's not going to cause the kind of damage that I think COVID has. But my God, as you go through what's happening currently in New York and also looking at the history of uh, uh, of polio, mm. you just can't help but think, gee, mm. this sounds familiar. Yeah. And watching history repeat itself, but also potentially a good opportunity for us to apply the lessons we've all learned <laughs> yeah. recently. Yeah. Yes, because humanity is so good at learning from the past, aren't we? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, great. Looking forward to that. And for Pop Goes Your Health, uh, at the tail end of the show, we're going to take a quick look at the quantified self. Things like Fitbits and sleep trackers and and the like, the pros and the cons and the and the <laughs> and the trend that it is. That's right at the tail end of the show. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We have Professor Mark Belgrove, who is the Director of Research at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health and a Professor in Cognitive Neuroscience at Monash University, where he leads a multidisciplinary team that investigates the biological basis of attention and cognitive control. Professor Belgrove is, an, is internationally recognised for his work on the genetics, neuropsychology and pharmacology of ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Professor Belgrove is also the founder and president of the Australian ADHD Professionals Association, which is a non-for-profit organisation of interdisciplinary professionals that's devoted to improving the diagnosis and management of ADHD in Australia. This group, uh, led by Professor Belgrove, uh, recently published uh, an evidence-based clinical practice guideline for ADHD. Professor Belgrove, welcome to Radiotherapy this morning. Thanks very much for inviting me. 
We're very glad to have you on the show. Professor Belgrove, I imagine that many of our listeners, when, when they hear ADHD, they, they create an image in their mind of a, a naughty little boy. Now, you can't see me, but I say that in inverted commas. <laughs> but of course, this, this is a simplistic and uh, a frankly inaccurate representation of ADHD. So what, what is ADHD? Yeah, of course, that, uh, that is um, a common misperception uh, regarding ADHD, and that's, um, you know, I would say a largely stigmatising view that uh, people have of uh, kids with ADHD particularly. So, look, ADHD is a, what we call a neurodevelopmental condition, meaning uh, its onset is early in life. Um, it's marked by excessive levels of uh, inattention on the one hand, so problems focusing attention, uh, increased distractibility, and on the other hand, by excessive levels of uh, hyperactivity or impulsivity. So, you know, the hyperactivity features are the sort of the child that's constantly on the go, uh, often as driven by a motor is the description used. Uh, and the impulsivity side of it can be trouble controlling uh, action, blurting out answers in class when it's maybe not appropriate to do so. But I think it's really important to emphasise uh, to your listeners that all children can display some of these uh, behaviours at certain points in their development. And really what we're talking about uh, with ADHD is a persistent pattern of symptoms. Uh, and crucially, they need to be impairing and they need to be impairing across multiple settings. So, uh, you know, when someone says, oh, I've got a couple of those symptoms, and maybe I have ADHD... Uh, what we're really talking about in the condition is uh, is children and adults uh, whose symptoms are causing a functional impairment in their everyday life, uh, their education, uh, their work, their relationships, etc. Professor, thank you for joining us on the show. Um, I guess what you're describing is that it's what we call a clinical diagnosis. That you know, there's no there's no brain scan or, or blood test marker that can uh, reliably indicate that someone's got ADHD. Could you give us a bit of a, uh, a walkthrough of how that diagnosis uh, is typically made? Sure. Look, you're absolutely right. It is a, it is a clinical diagnosis, uh, and in that regard, uh, ADHD is no different to uh, any other mental condition where we lack uh, objective biomarkers that would aid us uh, in making a diagnosis as lovely as they, they would be. Uh, look, the, um, the diagnostic procedure or the assessment procedure... Uh, the, the, it would typically go that uh, someone would go to a GP with some concerns uh, about uh, their symptoms, their concentration, their attention uh, in childhood. That would often mean uh, the GP would refer to either a paediatrician, uh, a psychologist or perhaps a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Uh, and they would go through a fairly detailed assessment of the child's uh, development, uh, were developmental milestones achieved, for example, uh, they would go through uh, the symptoms that are presenting and, and the degree to which they are uh, impairing the child. They would probably quite often uh, also seek support or uh, collateral uh, evidence from the, the child's teacher uh, or, other, or other close uh, people involved in the care. Uh, and they'd really try to piece together a picture to see whether that critical impairment level uh, or impairment criteria uh, is actually met because that is uh, that is uh, the feature that must be must be met. Um, so it can be it can take a little while. It can be a bit of a procedure. Uh, sometimes there may be coexisting conditions, what we call comorbidities, 
that may also complicate the presentation uh, and they would also need to be carefully assessed uh, as well. Uh, Professor, I'm wondering, um, a lot of what you were just saying about the diagnosis process there was focusing on young people, school age type. Um, is there a distinction in that diagnosis process for adults? No, by and large it would be uh, similar a GP referral. In the, in the case of adult ADHD it would be to a psychologist or an adult uh, psychiatrist uh, and often again um, collateral information might be sought from uh, partners or other uh, close friends uh, or relatives. There probably also uh, would usually be an attempt to find evidence from the uh, history of the person, so going back to school reports, for example, right. uh, if it was a case of an adult who hadn't had a childhood diagnosis, uh, the clinician would often seek to see that there were behaviours in childhood, uh, symptoms in childhood consistent with ADHD. So um, are you saying that if uh, somebody is diagnosed in adulthood, it's more likely than not that they um, had ADHD uh, as children? Yes, that's... That is the current um, uh, expectation. There, there are cases of what we refer to as a de novo uh, adult ADHD, that it occurs de novo in adulthood without a child presentation, uh, but they are much rarer uh, than the case of a childhood presentation. Professor, you've described uh, so much of the behaviours that we might see and, and the limitations on people's capabilities, but what do we know about what's actually happening inside the brain? of someone with ADHD? What's going on in terms of the mechanism? Sure, look, um, you know, we know a lot actually, and in many ways, ADHD is a pretty good model of how uh, scientific understanding has progressed. So many of your listeners will probably be uh, familiar with the, the concept of uh, neurochemical in the brain, dopamine being dysregulated uh, in ADHD. That's the current hypothesis, so we think dopamine levels and also another chemical, noradrenaline, uh, in the brain are dysregulated in folks with ADHD and that is the mechanism or the reason why uh, stimulant medications such as Ritalin, uh, why they uh, result in reductions in symptoms because they directly act on these uh, dopamine and noradrenaline systems in the brain. Um, you know, we, we, there are subtle structural changes in the, in the brain that have been seen, you know, across la very large uh, multi-site international studies. There are also subtle functional changes that, in, that is how efficiently, uh, if you like, the brain uh, is working uh, and equally, you know, cognitive uh, changes that you can measure, for example, on um, objective uh, computerised tests of attention. So. We see that the folks with ADHD often will have trouble uh, with what's called attentional control, maintaining attention over time. Uh, they'll often have um, uh, differences in their, in their reward system as well, uh, preferring, for example, um, sooner or smaller rewards sooner rather than larger rewards later, for example. Uh, and all these cognitive phenomena and the underlying, underlying brain circuits are known to be modulated by uh, dopamine and noradrenaline as well. Now, Professor, you've led the development of the uh, evidence-based guidelines uh, for ADHD. Can you give us an idea of what the landscape of the practice has been like? What's been the need to develop these these guidelines? Sure, yeah, look, thanks. and uh, I'm really uh, happy to be able to talk about this. I should say they're not published yet. They're awaiting uh, release with the launch 
uh, by the hopefully the health minister. Look, um, you know there hasn't been a uh, a clinic evidence-based clinic practice guideline that has been approved by the National Health and Medical Research Council uh, for ADHD yet. Uh, there was a t an attempt previously, but it uh, didn't quite uh, get get up, get up and get approved. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of different discipline areas that are involved in the care uh, of ADHD, as I've mentioned, paediatricians, psychologists, psychiatrists, but also, you know, speech pathologists, occupational uh, uh, occupational therapists, nurses, etc. So the guideline is really an attempt to outline what is the best uh, practice for diagnosis, treatment and support of folks with ADHD. Uh, also to give people with a lived experience really a, a ready access to current state-of-the-art knowledge and information so that when they go uh, to a clinician they know which therapies, which treatments are uh, evidence-based uh, and have a, a, an expectation you know, of benefit in terms of symptom reduction. So it's really an attempt to unify practice across, across the country. Uh, to harmonise, but also provide the state of the art in terms of our current knowledge. That's uh, it. Sounds like an incredible feat that you've um, undertaken over the past, uh, I imagine, several years. Uh, I I'm interested in uh, discussing diagnosis, particularly adult diagnosis, because it's some it's become somewhat of a trend on um, a lot of the social media platforms like TikTok to, to discuss ADHD and the symptoms that uh, people have been experiencing with ADHD, and then this kind of triggers a lot of people who are watching these videos to be like, oh, well, maybe I have ADHD, um, and I've actually had you know friends and acquaintances and, and patients who have all um, said, well, you know, I've made all this. This TikTok is saying that I've got ADHD because I've got all of these symptoms. Um, I guess what I'm asking is, what do you suggest to our listeners who um, who may have had that experience? You know, what what should they be doing? Yeah, look, I mean, there there certainly is a, an upswing, a, an uptick in uh, media interest, including including this show uh, about <laughs> ADHD, and we're we're very, we're very happy about that, to be honest, because in actual fact. Uh, the data would suggest that uh, ADHD in adulthood is probably underdiagnosed in Australia. If you look at uh, population prevalence rates, uh, roughly two and a half percent of adults uh, will have ADHD. So, look, and you know, if if someone watches a TikTok or uh, listens to this and it triggers concerns for them about their own functioning, well, the, the first place is always. Uh, a trip to the GP and then a, a referral for an assessment. But, you know, it's um, these days for an assessment for adult ADHD, the wait lists are very long. Uh, there's no public health system treatment of adult ADHD. So it is you will join a waiting list to see a private clinician. Uh, that's a sort of a, a big issue at the moment in the... Uh, healthcare system uh, for adult ADHD. There are real health equity uh, issues at play there. Um, so, yeah, you know, that is all. If you've got concerns, see a GP and start the journey. Uh, but, you know, again, we need to focus on the fact that there needs to be functional impairment. Uh, people can may have coped quite well through their childhood, adolescence, perhaps when adulthood hits and you've got the competing demands that we all face as adults. Sometimes it can start to unmask uh, behaviours that have been uh, shielded or coped or masked 
uh, during uh, periods where there has been less stress or less pressure on folks. So, you know, and I think we are definitely seeing that coming uh, through in the media reports, increasingly, particularly of women who have made it through um, their, their, you know, their childhood, adolescence, and even early adult life, seemingly cope quite well. And in some cases, let's be honest, uh, have succeeded uh, either as entrepreneurs or in whatever part of their life. Um, but really, they've had to be uh, really working very hard. It's almost like you know the duck that's sailing across the pond smoothly, but the legs underneath are really going furiously to keep it all afloat. Uh, and I think lots of adults with ADHD will feel will feel that. Professor, just following up from Dr Neo's question there, we've spoken on this program about um, uh, in relation to things like um, eating disorders and self-harm where, especially in school age, there's a, a sort of like a clustering effect at schools. Um, is that prevalent with ADHD as well? Uh, by clustering, you, you're meaning um, certain areas where you might get an increase prevalence? Yeah, so for example, when we've spoken about it in relation to eating disorders, it's um, there seems to be some pattern where it's rare that just one of the school kids has an eating disorder. They tend to, as I say, within friendship groups, it starts to be prevalent. Right. And, and so there's some suggestion, um, you know, what's been called clustering or some kind of um, mm. superficial contagion. Yeah, no, not that I am aware of. I mean, ADHD is is more prevalent uh, by population uh, rate in any case, but I'm not aware of any of uh, that phenomenon existing. Professor Belgrove, um, it's Dr Dilemma here again. I'm, I'm, a, I'm hoping to uh, clarify, are there distinctions? I know that when speaking about autism, we've um, we've heard that you know there's differences to look out for between the genders, and you know males may present uh, different symptoms or patterns of behaviours to, to to females. Are we seeing something similar um, with ADHD, where um, clinicians should be on the lookout for different things in in the different genders? Yeah, look, I think um, ADHD in girls and women is an area that we need uh, much more uh, information about. Uh, the evidence would suggest that uh, girls probably go uh, undetected uh, in, in childhood and adolescence. Uh, and the reason I say that is that we know the uh, prevalence rate of ADHD in um, childhood uh, disproportionately favours boys, mm -hmm. uh, but in adulthood it's largely largely equal, right? So uh, something's going on. It's either boys are emitting or girls are coming through uh, and achieving a diagnosis, and we think it's probably that girls are presenting with largely inattentive symptoms that aren't really coming to the attention even of the parent or the teacher uh, and the girls will often mask any problems that they may be having uh, so that they can fit in with their social settings, etc. And then as adolescence and potentially puberty, obviously, uh, hits, they can start to have a few more uh, problems, start to have trouble coping with their, their schoolwork, their social groups, and by adulthood, uh, you know, it can be further compounded. So uh, we think that's probably why uh, in adulthood we are getting more presentations of uh, females uh, who will then go back and retrospectively uh, report, as uh, you might have seen with uh, Mia Friedman recently and also M. Rosciano. You know, they will report that they were struggling during that period, but, um, you know, I guess it engaged in some masking to not bring it to folks' attention. 
Uh, Professor, times are really getting away from us. So, but before we lose you, just um, another question relating to um, sort of like the lived environment. You know, are there distinctions to be made between you know urban? Um, populations and remote populations and, and I guess uh, you know something similar along those lines in the prevalence of tech in our lives particularly screens and the swipes Yeah look not uh, certainly not so much the prevalence, uh, probably the biggest uh, issue would be if you were in remote uh, or rural settings, your biggest issue you'll have is lack of access to uh, services um, and thank goodness for the emergence of telehealth uh, these days, uh, definitely uh, helping to address uh, that. Yeah, look, the, the issue with tech is a, a bit of a vexed one, right? Um, the, the most recent report I saw showed a very small associational relationship between uh, use of digital media in a very large study and, and attentional uh, symptoms. Uh, so I think it's... Um, you know, if the relationship is there, it's certainly not going to be explaining... Uh, the large uh, number of cases that we know uh, exist in Australia uh, of, of ADHD. But naturally, it's always something to, to look out for for parents and to, to monitor and manage. Professor Belgrove, we've heard, um, you know, we've touched upon the negative connotations and the stigma and the, the functional impairment that um, uh, people diagnosed with ADHD uh, are suffering from. Can you touch upon what are some of the strengths about an ADHD diagnosis or, or the, the good things about neurodivergence? Um, the, um, can you touch upon that? Sure. Yeah, look, I think it's, um, you know, we're doing a lot of work these days to try and uh, reduce stigma because uh, people with lived experience uh, will tell you that stigma in the community is still the most damaging thing uh, for their mental health. Uh, and look, folks with ADHD have lots of uh, positive uh, attributes and, and aspects of their life that are really great. They'll often uh, be reported to be uh, more adventurous. They can often be more creative. Uh, sometimes in the workplace they can be highly uh, valuable because they uh, have this phenomenon of hyper-focus where they're able to really lock in on something uh, and work really hard in a concentrated way on, on it for quite an extended period of time. And look, you know, there are other aspects, uh, uh, adventurism that perhaps, you know, leads them to be uh, more, more outgoing, more adventurous in their pursuits and their, their work interests and their, and their hobbies, etc., so lots of uh, positive aspects uh, as well, and we're always careful not to focus on uh, naturally the uh, the negative functional impacts. Professor, we're sadly running out of time quickly here, um, but thank you so much for joining us on Radiotherapy today. It's been a real pleasure and a real privilege to have you on our show. For our uh, health practitioners uh, in the audience, um, can you tell us where, where can we access this guideline when it when it is when it is um, published shortly? Sure. Yeah, look, that's, uh, thanks very much. The, um, the website is uh, www.aadpa.com.au, ADPA, uh, and on that page you'll see a, a guideline tab that will allow you to register uh, to receive uh, the guideline uh, once it's uh, publicly uh, released, uh, and that can either be in a hard copy, for those of you who like a hard copy of things, uh, or uh, a digital version. Fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Belgrove. Um, it's great to have you on the show and, and to hear from your experiences and expertise. No worries. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. That was... Bye -bye.
that was uh, Professor Belgrave talking to us about. Um, whoops, there we go. Talking to us about um, ADHD um, and. Um, Big uh, note to a lot of our listeners who have been in touch with us on the text line. Um, I think we've been able to cover a lot of what you've said, but um, it's probably worth just making a general note about a couple of the text of people sharing their experience and appreciating um, the access and the uh, increased attention to ADHD, um, especially a couple of uh, messages coming in from adults on that front. Um, and perhaps uh, ADHD is a topic we can return to again. Um, um, and perhaps a little bit more about the lift experience would be, would be interesting. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We've had lots of interest on our on our text line from uh, our audience this morning after our uh, fantastic discussion with Professor Belgrove about ADHD. Um, we had a text from Monica who's um, asked us to repeat that website uh, to access those guidelines and there's also some fantastic resources to um, uh, about ADHD, which highly recommended. Um, that website, we'll repeat it again, is aadpa.com.au. That's aadpa.com.au. And if you're interested in uh, shooting a text through to our text line um, for anything that sparks your interest in the conversation this morning. Our text line's on 0466 98 1027. That's 0466 98 1027. Dr. Sharma, polio in New York City. I mean, it really caught my eye uh, slightly over a week ago when you know, the governor of New York has declared a state of emergency over polio. You're like, what is going on? State of emergency. <laughs> Bad enough polio. What year are we in? Yeah, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, but, no, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating story, uh, the way it unfolds. You know, I, I, don't, I don't mean to make it all doom and gloom because the fantastic thing about it at the end of the day is vaccines can and do and stop polio. They're really, really good at it. And yet the way it's unfolded is fascinating because the USA has not had a single case of polio for over a decade. But over the last month, officials knew it was coming because back in July... There was a, an, a, an unvaccinated man, 20 years old, in Rockland's County, New York State, um, who had contracted the virus and became paralysed. Now, this is really important, the fact that he was paralysed, because uh, of all the people who get polio, you know, it takes about 500 people to be infected to get one person who's paralysed. So they, they kind of knew potentially that mm. it was circulating. But maybe he went overseas and got it from someone else. Can't really be sure, right? Over time, however... In the wastewater samples, they've started to, to check for polio. And what's changed last Friday, not this one, last one was they found uh, the evidence of polio in a fourth county. So that has what uh, kicked off this disaster declaration. And what this means is that it's expanded who it is in New York State who can give out the polio vaccine. So not just doctors now, but emergency medical service workers, midwives, pharmacists. And now the health department is doing... Uh, mandated data collection from healthcare providers to find out who has and has not had uh, the vaccine. So there's some, some pretty broad powers that are being used mm. here uh, because they need to get on top of it. The aim, well, you know, the national average, the aim is always about you know, 90% vaccination rate for polio, but the statewide average is 79%. 
But in some of those counties where they've found uh, uh, the polio in the wastewater, uh, vaccination rates are as low as 80%, 60%. There's a zip code where the vaccination rate for polio is 37%. Oh. I mean, you're going to find places in you know, sub-Saharan Africa with much higher vaccination rates than that. Wow. And, uh, and it, what's fascinating here is you know, this... Polio is something on which we've made so much progress, but for various reasons, everything from kind of political ones to anti-vaxxogenders to some quite literally physiological reasons, because the, the strain of, uh, 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 of polio we're seeing currently is called vaccine-derived polio. Um, in the last couple of years, we've now got small outbreaks occurring in roughly 30 different countries. Can I just jump in there? So yes. to some years, vaccine-derived polio means vaccine causes polio. Uh, yes, and this is the problem, right? Like, I mean, no, that is actually not the problem. I mean, like, the problem is that people hear it like that. And, and it's actually quite a complex thing to, to wrap our heads around. So I'll try and summarise this as best I can. Long story short, polio is an ancient disease. Around for thousands of years, we can see depicted in the art, it causes a, a type of paralysis. And it, back in the 50s, uh, vaccines started to be invented. Now, the vaccine that we're using in the Western world at the moment is the injected polio uh, uh, vaccine. This just uses a completely inactivated virus that causes basically you know, no chance of, uh, of polio kind of occurring. Pretty effective. But the problem is you've got to store it and it's expensive and it's hard to give out. So uh, often in, in, in developing world nations, you give the oral polio vaccine. Easy to store, cheap, really effective. One could argue even more effective than the ones mm. that, that we used, you know, kind of in the West, the injected ones. However, it doesn't use an inactivated virus. It uses a weakened virus. Mm. So what can happen is a small percentage of the time, if someone gets this oral polio vaccine with the weakened virus, if you are in a population where not many people are vaccinated at all, you can pass that virus on to other people, unvaccinated ah. people. Mm. And when one person gets it and they pass on it to someone else, to someone else, to someone else, one of the things we've learned through COVID in the last few mm. years, lots and lots of trans transmission will cause a mutation and that weakened virus becomes activated. But this isn't an unexpected um, effect of the this vaccine. This is something that we knew is going to happen and kind of... Uh, rely a little bit on it to to increase the protection of that community. It's fascinating, isn't it? But yeah, so we've known about this for decades. And if you just pass it on to you know kind of one other person, mm. most of the time, overwhelming majority of the time, they're not going to get a disease at all. They'll mm. get immunity. Mm. So the problem specifically is not the vaccine. The problem is the the use of the oral polio vaccine in countries where lots of people are still not vaccinated. Mm. That's the issue here. Uh, and, of course, uh, tr so travel will often bring over viruses from, from some of these countries in, into places like America or, you know, or, or London or, or wherever else. Because the immunisation rates are high, we're fine. And that's the great thing about polio. Mm. Uh, that's a great <laughs> thing. Do <laughs> 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 you want to reword that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, the, the, the fantastic situation we find ourselves with in polio in 2022 is if you're vaccinated, you're fine. The problem we are running into is in communities where vaccination is low. And it's fascinating to see the counties where vaccination rates are low in New York at the moment. Mm. Um, large amounts of uh, Jewish Orthodox uh, communities present in Rocklands County, Orange County, mm. Nassau County. And so 
yeah, I think one of the things that, that local people are doing and religious leaders are doing and actually reminding people going, hey, actually, according to our scriptures in the Torah, um, this is totally uh, supportive of things like vaccination. And of course, in many Orthodox Jewish communities, vaccination rates are 100%. Yeah. The, the idea of valuing life, you know, not just yours, but of your community is, uh, is a really important precept. Um, but what's actually been happening over the last several years uh, is the anti-vax community has been targeting yeah. Uh, 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 communities that are religious and have strong kind of connect- connections and putting this, and th- these are the quote, quotes, putting this kind of Jewish spin in order to kind of convince these these communities really? to get on board with the anti-vax mm. stuff. It's, it's, it's incredibly pernicious. Yeah. Mm. So where are we, so when um, uh, a state authority declares an emergency or, or whatever the terminology might be, that's, that rings lots of alarm bells. What mm. does it actually mean in terms of um, what, what's, what's the scale of the risk we're looking at there? Um, is it, it's obviously highly contagious, right? So even if the numbers are small, doing a state of emergency is, mm. is appropriate. Exactly right. So the problem is that the risk to the unvaccinated is enormous, right? Mm. But the, here's the trap that I can see people likely to fall into, panel beta, right? Only one in 500 people are going to get the paralysis. And we mm. saw the way how COVID played out with, mm. well, only 1% risk of death, 2% <laughs> risk of death, half percent risk of death. Yeah. Well, why should I have to do you know anything? This is potentially an even kind of small risk. So when you talk about the communities who really need to be targeted, the unvaccinated, how do you you know how do you convince those people that you could be that statistic? And yeah. I think part of the problem is that polio is something that you know previous generations had to deal with. Yeah, uh, it's it's kind of out of our, our our collective memories a bit. But look, if you've got a family member or someone in your family tree who's had you know, had polio or, or has you know, strong memories and that's made an impact uh, and echoes in your family of polio, let us know on oh four six six nine eight ten twenty seven oh four six six. Nine eight ten twenty seven because from reading the literature I can see how powerful it has been for people to mm. know people who've had these disorders and how the fact that this has become invisible and, and mm. gone mm. is actually kind of empowered uh, the anti-vax people to to amp up their messaging and for people to forget how important it is to eradicate yeah. these out diseases. Of sight, out of mind. In, interestingly, interestingly. The uh, I can't speak English today. Uh, the first patient that I did what, what we call a long case on, which is a basically you go through a patient's whole history and examination, figure out what's what all their medical issues are, was a polio patient. Wow! And you know he'd had polio back in I think the fifties, become paralysed from it, mm. and that image is just so powerful and has stuck in my mind, and quite frankly, quite scary like his description of it was awful mm. and the things that he had he experienced and it's quite frightening to think that you know it's been gone for so long that it might be coming back yeah and uh i mean funny you say talk about scary images i think the iron lung is the mm. thing that's yeah. talked about yeah. and that's occurring because like i said it causes paralysis of of motor nerves and if one of those nerves is required to to to, to breathe people mm. literally need to go inside these iron lungs and there is no cure but again the, the vaccines are so effective at stopping this um that you know there, there's an end in sight and mm. and not to be all doom and gloom like the vaccines are included in our uh, immunization mm. schedule so if you if you're up to date with your vaccines you're fine yeah. That, oh, that's kind of where where I was thinking, um, Dr. Sharma. Obviously, 
it's COVID has taken precedence in terms mm. of our, you know, we were, everyone's trying to get our COVID vaccination rates up. Do you think that has come potentially at a cost of, um, uh, you know, resources being diverted to let's get everyone vaccinated for COVID and perhaps the routine um, immunisation schedule is a, a little bit fallen off the fallen off the wagon? Absolutely, there. yeah. So in 2019, uh, the vaccination rates in New York uh, uh, for the kind of average in some counties was like 92.5% and that fell back by about 2 2.5% mm. during the COVID point. Um, it's interesting as to what the cause for this might be. So I absolutely think you're right. I think service disruption and, and lockdowns, etc. would have played a part. But also many people have, have said this has been a really powerful time for the anti-vax lobby. Um, we've seen how incredibly politicised um, and ideological people's choice to get vaccinated is, is or not. That's also been something that's been kind of powered up in the last couple of years. So on the other hand, I, I look at uh, the, how the pandemic has played out and go, well, what could be effective? Now, in Australia, mandates have been incredibly effective. I doubt in somewhere like America that, that that's going to work. Oh, I'll have a kettle of fish. On the other hand, we know how incredibly powerful targeted vaccination um, campaigns are. Mm. I mean, these are the approaches that we've been using in in, in developing world countries to, to eradicate it, right? Take the vaccine to people's doors. Have aid mm. workers who are willing to have the yeah. discussion with them explain to people in their language, in their cultural context, what the need is. They say, no, that's not a no forever. Come back again. Mm. So it is possible to do these things. And you know, certainly that's the approach that we've, we've even used in Victoria. Yeah. So, you know, if we're not going to go with a heavy-handed mandate approach in, in America, maybe that's the stuff they need to do, the, the hard yards. My Google fingers tell me that um, Australia was officially declared polio-free in 2000. Um, with the last epidemic being in the early 60s. So hopefully it stays that way. But um, that news from uh, over in NYC is uh, a little alarming. It is, it is. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think, thankfully, the, the vaccine's so good. We're never going to have a situation with that like we, we kind Great. of with COVID. And this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. The quantified self, ladies and gentlemen of the studio, hands What's up. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> Do you track your steps? Do you track your sleep? Do you track your weight? Now, right at the top of the episode, when you said, you know, pe- people with wearables and tracking themselves, say, like, I don't. And I was like, no, I look at my steps every day, like three times a day. Yeah, so yeah. I'm doing it. Uh, I used to try and, um, I, when I did a September challenge for raising right. funds for cerebral palsy, yep. um, I had a challenge that, uh, now I can't remember, it was a, to try and get 100,000 steps over the month, I think. So I did become a little bit obsessed with my mm. step tracker and if it got to 10pm and I was um, meant to be going to bed and I'd only got 8,000 steps and I'd be doing laps of the hallway until I hit my 10,000. So. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> I, I have a Garmin watch and oh, I'm, I mean, I not that might be naughty on uh, on the radio, but yeah, I love it. I um, big fan. Naughty and, on the radio. <laughs> and I d- and I track my exercise. I I track my heart rate. I do. I'm a- but but it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? There's like with the things we've touched on uh, previously in this uh, pop goes your health segment. There are layers to it. There are layers. And so, well, just quickly for a definitional sake, what we've just been talking about is um, uh, the quantified self. It's where we look at the metrics we collect for ourselves, the, the data collection on our, on our lived 
our daily lives um, is what's being referred to as the quantified self. And in and of itself, it can be as miscellaneous as doing a fundraiser with the steps or it might be because you want to um, uh, improve your sleep health, uh, sleep um, hygiene and so on. But um, it can get a little bit pernicious, as we'll, we'll find out. It's a term that's been around since about 2007 and Silicon Valley strikes again. Um, and uh, uh, largely, this is a, a trend that's emerged out of Silicon Valley um, uh, and a, a very particular uh, TED talk, unsurprisingly, um, by um, Gary Wolf in 2010 um, kicked off um, uh, a whole series of um, more formal organisations of interest in this, you know, in um, international conferences and, and so on. The quantified self. Now, so what could possibly be wrong or worrying about tracking your steps mm-hmm. or your weight or, or your sleep? Well, a few things, actually, it turns out. Um, and I'll just name four, and we can go through them uh, to the extent we've got time left. And just naming those four is uh, like we've seen with people with eating disorders. This actually can trigger um, ang- you know, um, anxiety. Over over your met your chosen metric. So mm. for somebody who's weighing themselves, you know, once a day, twice a day, three times a day, it becomes quite obsessive. That in turn then becomes um, it sort of backfires on the real objective, which is taking a you know taking control of your nutrition and your and your weight. Um, so the actual measuring of your weight becomes a problem in and of itself. Or well, add into that the measuring of uh, everything that mm. goes goes in, like calorie counting yeah. and the nutritional mm. breakdown entering that into an app and yep. it can be um, exhausting. Yep. Exhausting. Um, uh, a second point is the uh, issues around data privacy and the emerging mm. concerns about that. We've seen that in various forms just with um, health records here in, in uh, Victoria, but increasingly the interest that insurance companies are taking on this data and sort of like um, uh, inviting you to let them know what your um, all your metrics are as you take out health insurance. And uh, you know the implication being that um, over time the collection of this data will actually um, be directly correlated to premiums and access to insurance in and of itself. The third one I think is particularly interesting, um, and be keen to hear the doctors uh, uh, talk about the experience with patients, and it refers to data analysis. So it's one thing to be able to collect the data. And it's one thing then to assume you can understand it. And then it's, then it's quite another thing to be able to actually interpret the data. Because in all of these cases, of course, it's an N of one, you know. Um, the, the sample total is just the individual. And for a lot of these things, like nutrition, like sleep, things, they often operate at a population level. So doctors in the room, have patients presented to you the Garmin reports? I have had um, quite a few... Uh experiences with this so positively i've had one patient who's come in with something called atrial fibrillation which is a a funny heart rhythm that can actually lead to things like strokes it was picked up by the an ecg monitor on an apple watch Mm. we we confirmed it on our ecgs we started them on medication and we've hopefully prevented a stroke in this patient so that's a very positive outcome from the the quantified self conversely i've had patients who've come in who we then have to have a, a you know fairly long discussion around what is considered a normal heart rate and what the normal physiology of a heart rate does in, for example, sleep going down, you know, resting below what we think may be normal, you know, maybe a little bit below sixty, or going up quite high during exercise. This is all normal, and um, 
people just don't under, some people just may not understand this because it's something that might not get taught. Good mm. stuff. Sorry to cut you off no. there, um, uh, Dr. Neo, but time is upon us. And I want to just acknowledge a couple of um, uh, texts that have come in. A, a listener has mentioned that the Stella Prize novel um, of 2015 called The Golden Age is a great story about polio in Melbourne during the 1940s. Um, so, yeah, look at that. And, of, and of course, um, for those who uh, have really enjoyed the work of Perry Keys, uh, you might be a, you know, the musician singer Perry Keys uh, was diagnosed with uh, polio. So um, it is uh, still out and about and on people's minds. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.